There's a movement brewing, and that movement is the Me Total Lifestyle. It centers around you keeping your sense of self intact and then gaining clarity of purpose as you age. I'm Carrie. I'm Joe. I'm JM. And we're on a mission to show you how to enjoy friends, fellowship, and life without substance dependence. It's time to discover how you can begin living a me total lifestyle right here on the Fuzzy Ish Podcast. Let's go. Welcome back to the Fuzzy Ish Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Q. With me, as always, is my boy, JMG. JM, we just had a really cool conversation with your boy, David Hegarty, a longtime cohort in your industry. Uh, tell the audience here uh, at the Fuzzy Ish Podcast, the Kinder Sober Show, what they can expect out of this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think it hits on so many of the topics that we cover on this show, right? The stigma of cannabis the ability to find a different relationship with alcohol, the ability to look at ways in which you can create these different relationships. And, and most importantly, all of our stories are different. It's not a zero or one situation. There are ways in which each of us has to sort of find our path. And at the end of the day, one of the central themes of, of the interview with David and something that I just feel so strongly about generally and even more today uh, due to some personal stuff this weekend you have to make these decisions for yourself, Joe, right? Like these decisions that we make, these changes, if you're not feeling good about them in your heart for yourself, and if you're not here to subscribe to where you're going as an individual, you're just not going to get there. That's not what Me Total is all about. Me Total is finding your pursuit, finding your motivation, and finding the, the avenues, and sometimes including cannabis, to get to just a better life and a way of showing up for all the people uh, in our lives. So. Really yeah. appreciated the time, and obviously, yeah, you I know, appreciate you, brother. Yeah, you know, I didn't. We didn't hear these exact words come out of David's mouth, but one thing that I really appreciated about him uh, is, as you could tell, that he has a, a perspective on things that's very proactive, right? Mm. Instead of letting life come to you and always reacting to it, taking control, seizing the moment, and being proactive with yourself, with your thoughts, with those things that you choose to consume. Um, and and actually attacking life uh, in a much more thoughtful way versus being just so responsive all the time. And I think if, if people take anything out of this messaging is that I think David does an exceptional job of really coming to grips with who he is and mm -hmm. how he needs to live his life, which I think is, is really, really cool. Dude, one, yeah. I mean, one thing I would just humility, right? So I think I think there's something that we don't talk about that often on this show. And I think is really just so present with him. He knows he's not perfect and he's okay talking about it. Right. So our ability to have, to show some humility and some compassion with ourselves as part of trying to be vulnerable and ultimately making it into this path of me total, such a huge aspect that we probably don't talk about often enough. And it just, res it's, it's so resident in him and it resonates in pretty much everything that he talked about. All right. Stay tuned for the show folks. All right, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Fuzzy-ish podcast, the Kind of Sober show. So fortunate to be the guy that gets to introduce our show today. Uh, here joined by my boy, Joey Q, and also a good friend, David Hegarty. Uh, David and I go back uh, more than a decade now, which is crazy. Um, actually, a lot of the success that we've seen at, uh, at, in, my, in my professional life, and in particular at the consulting company, 
that I was one of the founders, had a lot to do with, with this guy. He and I worked at a company before that, and then he introduced us to a software company that we had no business working for in 2014. And before we knew it, we had a 50-person company, and it ultimately was the foundation of the company that we sold earlier this year. So I'm forever indebted to Mr. Hegarty for a lot of the professional success, but he's also a good friend, uh, somebody that I personally hold it's at a really high esteem, has been someone that I could talk to about just about any topic going back lots of years now. Um, and has always been a person who I felt comfortable to talk about topics like this, uh, even before it was necessarily the cool thing to do or something that we had a show uh, to talk about. So anyways, without a he also has an unbelievable New England accent uh, being from Boston. So uh, nice to get a little bit different tone of voice here on the Fuzzy-ish podcast. But um, anyways, David Haggerty, uh, welcome to the show, man. Great to see you guys. Thank you very much, Jam. It's great to see you, my friend. And uh, Joey, pleasure. Looking forward. It's going to be yeah. a great conversation. Yeah, man. We're, we're so happy to have you. We've been having all kinds of different conversations about different people's stories as it pertains to me total and this idea of, um, you know, at least trying to examine our relationships with alcohol. We've had people that have never drank before. We've had people who had guns in their mouth and fortunately had just this moment of clarity that, that it was time to, uh, to figure their lives out and kind of everywhere in between. We talk, we like to talk about ways and, and sort of products and practices that obviously help us to, uh, to move the, the, the ball forward specific to those relationships. And we're just super excited to hear your story today. So um, without further ado, man, we would love to hear a little bit more about you. Uh, we'd also just love to hear kind of your origin story. Why uh, and why me total has really resonated with you as you've been clicking into our show over the last few weeks. Well, it's interesting, Jan, you, you and I go back and, you know, not that you saw the worst of me or the best of me, but that there was a time in my life being raised the way I was here in the Boston area. My mom and dad uh, from Irish family. My mother's from Dublin and alcohol in my household was also always a very temperate uh, social thing. There was never uh, a parent who was drunk or there was never beer in the fridge. But at a young age, I think a lot of the social pressure uh, I bought into it and I wasn't a five or six day a night drinker. I was a Friday or Saturday night binge drinker. I never came home and, and sort of had beer in the fridge. The problem was uh, I would get anxiety, severe anxiety, both before drinking and after drinking and uh, feels of shame and remorse. And it, although there had been nights uh, where I could go out and I'll just use you and I jam, we were in Amsterdam and we have dinner and a beer the next day. I would wake up and just feel like utter garbage. And it might only be one beer, but that that anxiety uh, of waking up and not feeling very good about myself got to a breaking point about 10 years ago. I was a good 10, 12 years into a marriage. I knew the marriage was collapsing uh, and I made a fundamental change to try to win this woman back. And the first thing that came to mind was uh, getting in shape, uh, getting back to my athletic self. And that meant for me, abstaining 100%, just driving alcohol out of my life. The problem was in the first 60 or 90 days, I, I just, I, again, I, I felt uh, sort of like a dread. I, I just, I felt mm. sort of uh, uneasy. I felt uncomfortable. And I was lucky enough that I had a few friends who at the time, cannabis had just become legal in Massachusetts. And I got a medical card here in the state of Massachusetts mm. uh, to help deal with sort of that anxiety, if you will. And 
oddly enough, no one usually tells it from this point of view, but I began to use cannabis as an athletic enhancer. Hmm. Uh, I, it allowed me to rest. It allowed me to recover. More importantly, it allowed me to turn my head off at night. I'm one of those guys, as JM knows, who uh, my mind, I'm a squirrel. My head's going 24 hours a day, and it's, it's not always the most healthy environment. Now, it can be very good in a variety of ways. If I take you fishing or hunting, or if I take you, you know, if we do something where your head's got to be on a swivel, I'm the guy you want to be with. But mm. if you sit next to me on a plane from Boston to Amsterdam, JM will tell you that can get a little bit annoying <laughs> after eight hours. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I, so I started to participate in both uh, edibles and, you know, and smoking was something that was always sort of in the back. I played lacrosse. So, you know, full disclosure, I was smoking weed before it was cool because I played lacrosse. Lax bros. Yeah, man. You know, yeah, I was a lax bro. I played football in high school, but lacrosse was my jam. And the lax bros always had a dip in a, in a joint and they were, you know, listening to the Grateful Dead. And that was like a, it was a stereotype that was very true. And uh mm. I never, growing up here in Boston, I never really got into any of the hard drugs. I was a beer drinker and I would smoke some weed. But fast forwarding to my mid 30s, uh, I began to really get into running and mm. cannabis really helped me. I could run. I went from not being able to run a mile to running the Cambridge Half Marathon at a pretty serious pace. I run to this day and I tell people that uh, diet and exercise is the key, but rest. If you listen to any athlete, they'll tell you rest is more important than mostly like if it's Rogan or David Goggins, all these phenomenal athletes, they will always say the same thing, which is rest and recovery is just as important as anything else. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll close it with that, which was I was using uh, <laughs> cannabis to reduce my anxiety to really quite honestly change my headspace. I went from <laughs> being on edge to being very relaxed and very present in the moment, which was excellent for my kids, excellent for myself. But when you run long distance, five, 10, 12 miles, not really long distance for, for hardcore people, but for me, long distance, I, I became very Zen-like. I would just get in the moment. I would enjoy the visuals. Uh, I wouldn't feel the sort of arthritis, arthritic pain in my ankles and my mm. knees. Uh, and then that night I'd go home and maybe I would have, you know, I would smoke a little or have a gummy and I'd sleep like a little baby, wake up the next day. I'd have no anxiety. I'd have no remorse or feeling like I did something wrong. And I could, more often than not, I'd be super motivated to do it again. And mm. now, you know, the marriage thing didn't work out as well, but I, I abstain from alcohol cause I don't want to, it's just not, doesn't work for me. Uh, and I actively use cannabis in my uh, workout routine. If it's if it's part of my recovery or if it's part of my pre, you know, if I'm doing a long run, I might enjoy a sativa. Sativa will bring me up. Indica tends to bring you down. Hybrids, we can get into the science of the later. Hybrids, you got to be careful of. I've, I've gone on five mile runs. And as a story, I'll tell you guys later about Seattle where I meant to go for a five mile run. I end up running 15 miles. <laughs> uh, I was pretty. Yeah, high. we haven't talked. We haven't talked much about the science, you know, I think even just the idea that there's different strands that give you different levels is something that we haven't necessarily gotten into too deep, but that's definitely an interesting point. The other thing that you mentioned is that you don't feel any sort of anxiety uh, with cannabis. Interestingly enough, I did, right? So I, I came off of me, I came off of alcohol and really started moving towards this me total mantra. Couldn't have done it without gummies and without cannabis. I don't like to smoke anything. So it was all, you know, gummies and, and, and that format. But I found myself after, you know, a few months of at least a few days a week consuming 
gummies feeling that same level of pressure. And what's interesting is more people are you that are that don't necessarily have that. And that's what we're so excited about on this show is that you have things like cannabis that allow us to, to have this clearer mind, but also this clearer heart as it pertains to, to stress and anxiety. Well, Quick question. There's a yeah. couple of products out there that are actually marketing towards people like you. Uh, there's a there's a drink called Off Field now. Their entire idea is to basically market to athletes like you that, and they will help with runs. Have you tried anything that's explicitly sort of? Uh, I have. There's a there's a drink and I don't know. I think it's Levia. There's yep. one up here, and they have one called Elevate. Um, yep. I, I don't want to screw up the 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 products, but they have one that I use pretty exclusively, which is called Elevate, and um, that I believe is a sativa leaning product. It's a high energy. Um, cool. I, I'm a squirrel, so I don't really, I'm not a, I'm not an in the couch, the bag of Doritos watching, you know, Netflix kind of guy. So for me, if I'm going to get outside, I love to feel just that energy rush. And I think this is part of the science where if people aren't using cannabis correctly with regards to what strain are they ingesting, that can cause a, a pretty negative effect. If you're someone who's very relaxed by nature and you're looking to relax and watch, you know, a, a documentary, I wouldn't advise, you know, green crack or Kilimanjaro or any of the sativa strain because now you're just going to be wound up on the couch. Mm. Uh, going back to the story in Seattle, there was a great store in Seattle and I had an Elevate. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. I had a shot of espresso and I had, I think, a five milligram Elevate. I had no intention of running more than five miles. At some point, I looked back and Seattle was like seven and a half miles down the hill. I just got so sucked into it. I was so jazzed. Uh, and then I had to turn around and jog downhill all the way back into Seattle town, but ended up being like a 14, 15 mile run. Uh, and I just, it, it was all because I was, I was just in the moment versus in my head, thinking about work, thinking about family or thinking about things that would get me fired up. That sativa energy burnt off. Right. So when I got to work that day at nine o'clock, everyone was complaining about their morning commute. I had already run five, 15 miles and had a coffee. Uh, so I had burned through that. But if I had taken that same drink and sat on the couch, I probably would have lost my mind, right? Because <laughs> I think the energies can be too high for people. For me, I tend not to do any of the chill products, things that are more on the indica side, because um, I find it just, I, I fall asleep. Now, that might be good at night as a recovery product, right? You, you work out hard, you go for a hike, you ski, you run, you want to get a good night's rest. You might want something that's on the indica side of the strain versus the sativa side, Um but for me, what I found with cannabis is I don't really need anything at night. I don't need to participate in anything at night. If I have a workout in the mid-afternoon or if I go skiing, if I do something active, the burning of all that physical energy and the burning of that uh, or the using of my muscles right to run or ski or hike, I sleep like a baby that night mm. uh, because I burnt the energy off properly without having to use, say, a cannabis or even a CBD gummy to fall asleep at night. I think so. so interesting. I mean, I... I had always known that you could use cannabis to help in aiding in like muscle recovery and stuff like that, particularly on the hemp side with like CBN and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't too familiar with using cannabis as an upper to kind of like fuel your lifestyle in, in a positive wellness type way. Where do you find information? Um, like I know a lot of people that spend a lot of time in dispensaries uh, become familiar and friendly with bud tenders and stuff like that. But 
Do you have a local bud tender that you talk to all this stuff about, or is there an online resource or are there influencers that you follow that are really knowledgeable about this type of stuff? So I don't know if we can, we can plug products, but so plug. We're good the, the answer is yes. Um, there was a group called very revolutionary clinics uh, yep. in Boston. There was yep. one in Somerville, maybe two in Somerville. Uh, the Vining family was connected to that. And the Vinings were good friends of the family going back actually uh, to my father's generation, I hung out with a guy who was a grower. I actually grew cannabis in, in, a, in a closet at one point in my life. And I was trained by guys who were really heavy um, consumers of the flower back mm. in the day. Sure. When my friend started the revolutionary clinics business, when he got involved with that, that's really where I started to learn the scientific side versus sort of the street theory side. Um, and he was really that that dispensary was very much a part of the forefront of this idea of using cannabinoids, in particular the CBD products, to recover. Uh, Sweet Dirt up in Portland, Maine, has become my single resource. There's some phenomenal places in in Maine. I find Maine and Washington State. Uh, we get I could tell you a little the tour of the world I've had from Amsterdam to Seattle, but my favorite is actually Maine. There's a product up there called, or there's a company up there called Sweet Dirt and the uh, bud tenders are tremendous. And when I walk in, they know that there's our sativa guys when they go run 15 miles and uh, they take good care of me. But it's, it's kind of wild that, you know, for people that are needing to replace or at least consider an alternative lifestyle to alcohol, like we're not having these same conversations about alcohol. Like there is That's no... Right different strains that you can use to go get a better workout and stuff like there that. Is, hey, it's uh, it's not as much of a wellness conversation. Whereas, you know, in, in cannabis, yeah, yeah, you can go get that, that psychoactive effect, that leisure effect, but you can also use it for much more of a positive impact on your life as well. Absolutely. I mean, when I used to bartend, I used to get a kick at it. People would come in and ask for a gin martini and I'd turn around and say, Oh, this person wants asshole juice. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, two gin martinis deep, they're arguing with their wife, they're fighting. They're just, you don't, you know, you don't really have that. The alcohol sends to have the same effect with everyone. The more you drink, the more depressed it be. It's a depressant. Mm. Um, now, everything can bring you down or bring you up to some extent, depending on what you're leveraging. But I find with, again, and I'll go back to, I'm a sativa guy because I like the energy. I like the clarity, right? I like being able to think clear. Sometimes if I smoke or consume an, an, an Indica brand uh, or Indica strain, I can find myself a little foggy headed and you know it's a little sort of dazed and confused to make a sort of a social reference. Uh, that's why for me, when I started to talk to a lot of the bud tenders, especially the people up in Maine who were big on, dude, if you're gonna go hike five miles, or if you're gonna go hike Mount Washington, you're going to want to be able to get back down. You're not going to want to eat a bag of Doritos at the top and fall asleep. Right. Exactly. So that's where I was really introduced to some phenomenal strains. Silver Haze, Kilimanjaro is probably one of my favorite, Gorilla Glue. Uh, I'll drop some product names. But some of these strains on the sativa side have really helped me maintain energy, um, power through. Like, if you know, it's a bad day hiking or skiing. I'm just so jazzed psychologically that I just power through the rain or the snow. And then the idea of uh, having no socialing, not feeling bad about myself like I would with alcohol. I just eat again. I could have one drink and the next day I'd feel like a bag of trash. I just it didn't make me feel good about myself physically. I'd wake up and I'd feel the Guinness around my belly. You know, I'd go to the Dubliner with JM in D.C. and I'd have my, you know, six Guinness. The next day I'd wake up and have to roll myself to the office because I just it put weight on me. 
I can smoke and go run five miles and, you know, I can eat all the croissants I want now. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. Um, Two things. I I love the idea of uh, not needing it at night because I do think people will say sort of dazed and confused. Well, I'll have a gummy and I'll wake up in the morning and I'll feel almost as hungover as alcohol without the headache. I just feel like I don't want to do anything. And I think the reality is when you use it in the format that you're talking about and your body is, is working through and able to, you know, obviously grind through the cannabis, the same you would with anything else in your body, you come out of it feeling as healthy as as you did, you know, maybe even better uh, psychologically, which is really, really cool. The second thing that I wanted to ask you about is, a lot of people come on the show, they talk about the just addictive nature of booze, right? That it, like by the, it's so satiable, right? The, when you, when you drank the day before, you just want to drink the next day, especially people that like me that had a problem with it. With cannabis, do you feel that same level of satiable or are you able to go days without it and then kind of use it predictably the way you want to kind of talk uh, about Yeah. What- so I, I think for me, I was interesting. It's interesting you bring that up. Alcohol to me, I, I don't know. I, there's all these social stigmas. I don't know if I was addicted to alcohol. I didn't. I didn't wake up the next day and need a drink. But I was very consistent on a Friday or Saturday night. I'd almost get like sweaty palms. People would invite you out, and I would feel uncomfortable. And you'd have your drink, and I didn't like that. What's interesting with uh, with cannabis is I can go days or weeks without it, and the, but there also could be days or weeks uh, that I go every day. I enjoy it every day. I participate every day. Uh, so we'll take a step back. The idea of waking up the next day with a hangover from from cannabis, that's a fact, right? Any anything, it could be caffeine. I, I you know, I live on cannabis and caffeine and people kind of tease me about that. Caffeine the next day sometimes will make me feel like absolute garbage because I've had too much caffeine. My body's going too fast and I just I'm not resting properly. So I think mm. the same applies for anything. It could be nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, cannabis. If you're consuming, say, a 20 milligram gummy of indica or a hybrid, something that's going to put you to sleep, that cannabis has to burn through. Because, again, cannabis attaches to the body fat. And this is where uh, runners get the high. Right. So I'll have cannabis, the cannabis, the cannabinoids attaching to my body fat. I run. I'm burning the body fat as fuel. Guess what? I get a second elevated high because the THC is now being released in my system as I'm burning that body fat. If you take that gummy and you fall asleep and you wake up the next day, guess what's still in your system, right? Right. So I think it's the idea of how are you using it? How do you moderate? Moderation, I'm going to sound cliche, moderation is the key here. Uh, Using it appropriately will allow you to sort of have that level-headedness versus the foggy head. But I I mean, I haven't, in my case right now, I'm I'm, I'm a solid seven or eight days without having cannabis because I just, I've been focused on other things on a professional side. Um, at some point in the next week, I'm going to start getting into pre-ski season where I'm going to get heavy back into my running long distance, five to 10 mile runs, or I'll be doing 25, 50 mile bike rides. I'm going to be eating a gummy because (laughs) sitting on a chair for two and a half hours, you know, you know, a a seat that looks like this is my seat, you know, and that's the most comfortable thing I'll have for two hours. I'll throw that gummy in and guess what? I can just zone into my legs and the rhythm and being present. But I, I don't think it's, I don't think anything healthy except for going to the gym and eating right every day is the right thing. Uh, so for me, I definitely don't feel the same addictive personality or the addictive response. I will say though, 
especially smoking versus consuming, I think there's a ritualistic side to the sure. addiction, if that makes yeah. sense, JM. Just like people get addicted to going to the bar to hang out with friends and social, I think there is something very addictive about hitting the bong or smoking a joint or oh, whatever. Absolutely. We'll yeah, I and mean, that's why ritual. cigarette smokers can't, you know, yeah, I, I leave you with nicotine patch. I think the ritual can be very addictive, uh, especially if it's done in a social setting. Um, but that's just my personal opinion. I don't. I think the science says that marijuana, cannabis can't make you physically addicted to it. I have a mm. hard time believing anything that makes you feel that good doesn't make you want to do it. Uh, but I feel I like pe people are addicted to food. You know, it's yeah, like you mentioned. The ritual is, is everything, you know, like if somebody eats in, you know, silence because they don't want their significant other to see them or whatever, like it's still a habit. It's still an addiction. Great point, Joe. I don't know if it's if it's chemically addictive, but I think the ritual can be addictive. And for me, because of the way I use it, I don't feel obligated, Jam. I don't feel yeah. obligated to use it every morning or every night. I use it when it's appropriate. I use it when I need it uh, and I enjoy it when I use it. Yeah, I mean it's interesting and, and not to go on a tangent on this, but like I, I felt I felt truly helpless with booze. Like I couldn't and one of the you know, one of the things I tried to remember was the last day I didn't have a drink. So I had lots of beers in the fridge. I didn't ever take it to inebriation or very, you know, seldomly these days with three young kids, but um I always wanted a beer at the end of the day and that was just part of the ritual, but it's also obviously part of my chemistry and sort of chemical makeup at that point, it was so hard to stop. And I used cannabis, really small, low dose of, um, of sativa just to sort of take the edge off at the end of the day, similar to a beer. And I realized after some amount of time, man, I'm starting to kind of rely on it similarly to the beers. Yeah. I should, I, and I'm feeling a little bit of that anxiety in my chest. Like maybe it's from this. And I stepped back and realized really quickly, like it is that. And I just felt so much less of a direct sort of connection chemically to cannabis as alcohol. So as a, as a single user test, you know, the addictiveness for me was so significantly different, but I couldn't have kicked alcohol without it, which is a part of my story, right? Like there's so, no way good. That, that's a crucial point right there because, you know, and I mentioned it earlier, I wasn't a guy that drank seven nights a week, but I was a guy that once I started drinking, I probably couldn't stop just hmm. bluntly. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the social. I loved hanging out with you in Amsterdam or DC or you'd go, we go to, you know, the Adobe summit and you yep. go to an event and I would say to myself, I'll have a beer or two. I'm eight or nine beers deep. I'm having a laugh. The next day I wake up, I can't run. I can't work out. I feel like crap. I don't feel good about myself. So like, like yourself, I started to use sativa. I started to replace sativa and running, bluntly speaking. Those two things I started to use as like gifts to myself. If you don't drink tonight, tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to run three yeah. miles. You're going to have a gummy for breakfast. And everyone the next day, at, you know, Adobe Summer would be like, this is the happiest guy in the building, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was because I didn't feel crappy. But yeah. I think the anxiety going back to your situation, I think that's the, there's some truth to that. If the levels are too high in the milligrams or if the, if the strain is too high energy, you can get paranoia, you can get the anxiety. But if it's allowing you in the short term to stop doing something which is deadly, alcoholism, uh, I think there's a benefit there. It's just a matter of how do you, how do you keep yourself um, 
and I hate to use the word sober, but I like to use the word sort of like clean or clear headed. Mm-hmm. Right. Because um, what, what does sober mean? I, I drink alcohol once in a while. I might throw in a nicotine pouch. Right. Like, uh, I'm sorry, I, I like caffeine in the sense of coffee. But right. if I'm replacing caffeine because I get rid of alcohol, am I sober? Like, so this is that goes back right. to that social stigma. Like, well, what does sober mean? I'd rather say I'm trying to live a clean life and I use things that are beneficial to me versus negative. And alcohol was just a negative influence in my life that I just don't need. Yeah. You know, do you think we have a cultural problem with um, taking too much stuff? So one of the things that I have constantly been weighing in my mind is this idea that Hollywood and corporate America and all these different factions have tended to brainwash society over the course of 50 to a hundred years. And what they say is what we do. And because they glorify, we wind up doing those things too, but we'd never as Americans, and maybe it's that way in other countries as well. I don't want to generalize, but it seems like we have a problem with overconsumption in general. When we like something, we do it to a massive extent, including, you know, like, like I mentioned before, food, you know, you can overconsume food, you can overconsume uh, shopping, you can overconsume cannabis, you can overconsume alcohol. Do you think we have a cultural issue with consumption? In this I, I, so I think this is I'm glad we went here. Joe. I think this is one of the biggest problems in our society. Uh, the Dutch have a culture, the Irish have a culture, the, you know, the, the Japanese have a culture. What is American culture? Well, David, Joey and JM are all three different ethnic groups probably three different religious backgrounds, right? There's all, so what do we all share in common as Americans? Commercialism. Mm. So let's go back 50 or 60 years and watch a black and white movie. It could be about anything. It could be about Christmas. It could be about a war. It could be about cowboys. And I guarantee there's going to be bourbon and gin. There's going to be a hard alcohol cocktail. Uh, and there's definitely going to be cigarettes. And if mm. you look at our grandparents' generation, what did they do? They had the cocktail card at four o'clock every day. They made themselves a Manhattan. Why? Because that's what Humphrey Bogart did. Mm. Was Humphrey Bogart a good influence? Absolutely not. The guy was, based on what I've read, was a, a full-blown alcoholic, right? Could barely function. But again, he was put in a situation where he wasn't really acting. He was promoting booze through his movies, yeah. right? So I think consumerism, and, and I'm a capitalist, full disclosure, I think consumerism is a real problem because- if I were to take you to one of my favorite restaurants in Amsterdam, we'll have these lovely plates of food and the, the servings are meant for humans. There's just like a small mm. piece of chicken. There might be some rice. And then you have these small plates. We go to a cheesecake factory and there's 14 pounds of lettuce in a bowl that's meant for, for a horse. It's absurd. Mm. Uh, you go to any Boston bar, not anymore, which is interesting because of the cannabis, the drinking, I think. Is, and I think we could prove this with data. Alcohol consumption has come down considerably in Boston. But 20 years ago, my friends would go, you'd have guys would have 18, 20 beers because, it was, you know, in the silly, in the Coors Light commercial, girls with bikinis come on and you play volleyball if you drink this beer, right? Like it's a good time. Yeah. So I, I think you're on to something that's like, let's just even you shopping. You ever see the videos in these Black Fridays? People are fist fighting over a TV like it's the last TV ever to be made. Mm. Uh, why are they doing that? Because I think there's a lot of social pressure, right? They're being told that these things and these brands are what makes you happy. And when I was going through, when I've gone through my divorce, what I've come to realize recently is the only thing that can really make you truly happy is not the stuff. It's the quality moments and it's the love of self. And what I mean by love of self, not in a egotistical way, but loving yourself where you don't have to eat the 14 pound, you know, steak at, at the Cheesecake Factory. You can have something small because that's all you really need. 
Yeah. Uh, love of self, meaning you don't drink alcohol because it's not actually positively affecting your relationships with yourself or your family. Uh, or love of self means you have a gummy and you go for a walk in the park and you turn your cell phone off and mm. you just, you know, enjoy being with your friends and family. So I think I think it's a real problem, Joey, because if you go to Spain or Greece and you watch the way people engage and the happiness, there's booze all around them. And they drink out of these small glasses. Exactly, I used to get yeah. a kick out of it in Amsterdam. I'd order four pints of beer and the Dutch would lose their mind. They'd be like, no, what do we, yeah. what do we want a big giant glass of beer for? It's Tuesday. Yeah. And, you know, JM and I would smash it and go get more. Which one's yeah. got, so yeah, which one's got the highest percentage ABV would be our question. And they're drinking, you know, 3.5%. They're drinking lot, 3% Heineken in little small chocolate glasses yeah, or whatever exactly. they call them. Or you go to Greece and everyone's like, oh, they're doing shots of Uzo. No, they're not. Yeah. There's a shot of Uzo that's this big and they take about three hours to sip on it. Or go yeah. visit my family in Ireland. Yeah, they have a whiskey. A whiskey, one, one, right. <laughs> right. And they sit at the bar and they talk about football and rugby. They ask JM how his family is, and maybe my uncle finishes that whiskey an hour later. But this idea that they fall down in the streets and they, you know, get sick in the bathroom—that's an American thing, totally. Yeah. And there's two things that you said that I think we've been talking a lot about. One is you can't make a change without wanting it for yourself, right? So. I lost a family member this weekend, unfortunately, to alcohol. And he, you know, tried on a number of times to stop drinking and, and to be a healthier human. And the reality was he just never got there. I think in his heart, we spent a lot of time together and he just, he was a lonely person and had a hard time finding that direction. And, and that for me is such a clear example of what can happen when you don't have that personal identification with what you want. And so whether it's being able to run, whether it's being able to show up for your job in the way that you want or achieve in professionally the way, whether it's wanting to show up for your kids in a way that they're expecting you to do, there's all these different paths. And we always talk about there's not a one in zero answer here for how you get to that spot, Hegarty. But at the end of the day, you can't make those changes if you're not in it for yourself and you're not feeling good about the change and what that ultimately means for you. And that's, that's a big part of where our whole idea of me total comes from. It's not selfish. In fact, it's selfless. The way that you're able to show up for the people around you, whether it's your family or your friends or your colleagues or just the community is by be, is by having your own shit, your own house in order. Right. And that's, Oh, well, did you bring that up? Because initially, um, and I mentioned it, right? Initially, I was trying to become sober. I was trying to become better to save a marriage and to uh, have someone fall in love with me again, right? Hmm. What I learned in that process was you are who you are. You've always yeah. been Dave Hegarty. You're not going to change. There are some things that are good about you, some things that are bad about you, but you're willing to at least learn. So I learned from my mistakes. I try to better myself. And instead of getting hung up on why did this thing fail, I began, thankfully, through the stages of grief to see, like, look what you're giving your children, going back to your point, Jan, with the relationship I have with you, which goes back 10 years. You know, when I introduced you and your partner to Hippo back in the day, I was at a point in my life where alcohol was fading away, cannabis was mm -hmm. increasing, and I was trying to do things for other people because I recognized, like, life isn't about just collecting a bunch of stuff. How do you help people? Because karma comes around, right? Yeah. 10 years later, here we are on this podcast. And a lot of that's because you and I were like, we were bros. We took care of each yeah, other. Yeah, bros, no doubt. 
And that's yeah. something that really, that's who I, that, that for me is that self-love. If I can give and people can benefit, your wife and kids are doing well because you were successful in that venture. Maybe I had a little piece of it, uh, but you made it happen. Right. All I did was sort of put some people together and then you went out and made it happen. That makes me feel good because there's no uh, stigma associated with this. There's, there's no negativity of like, hey, you owe me something, Dave, or you owe me, Jam. And I think that's often the case when you're in that drinking culture. It becomes very mm. selfish, selfish, transactional, right? self-absorbed. And this goes back yeah. to Joey's point of like, you know, uh, just removing alcohol now and bringing it to this idea of consumptionism, mm. like. Oh, well, JM's got this thing and I don't. He must be better than me. And it's like, no, man, slow down. You don't have to go buy something to compete with JM. Listen to him talk. Go spend some quality time with him. And I think that's something that's missing, Joey, that hopefully comes back is that people let go of a lot of the consumptionism and realize that there's a lot of positivity in just quality moments with people. Right. We don't Dude, need it's fancy house or watch or what. I mean, I, I, people need things because they need to exist. But what I'm trying to say is like at some point you have to realize, like JM saying, that your happiness is going to come from the inside. My happiness, mm. bluntly, it comes from running and skiing and spending time with my kids. I love to go to art museums. There's some things that I do that are kind of cliche, but they're not for me. Because when I walk into a quiet space with my kids and I see my kids excited about a movie or a piece of art or a ski mountain, it brings me joy and it didn't cost, you know, it doesn't cost much to just go for a walk in the woods and see a bald eagle in Maine and have everyone be like, that was awesome. Right. Uh, people can go on TikTok and watch me on the internet. It's not the same mm. as being in the woods though. Right. Well, and I think there's also like, there's something to the neural pathways of memory and, you know, us in society or not us. I mean, just like the, the way that culture has kind of manifested this, we've we've always been trying to convince you that it's a positive thing to be drinking so therefore i go out and drink and therefore i have these positive memories that i associate with those moments when i'm drunk so that later on in life when i want to unwind for something or i want to experience a positive memory i connect it back to a memory that i had right we don't have that as much with cannabis because it's been demonized for the past 50 years right, right through the war on drugs and all various different kind of things. Some of us like me and Jay, I mean, I, I recently kind of came back to cannabis in the past five years after having probably consumed it way more in my youth, like my teenage years. And, um, but I just don't have as many positive associations with it that kind of connect me to positive moments in time because I, you know, when I decided to, to, to leave cannabis when I was 20 or something like that, I decided it wasn't something that was going to make me more mature. I felt like right. I couldn't live and function in a mature society with cannabis as part of my diet. And for some reason, I thought I could with alcohol, you know? Yeah. And that's just the way that culture convinced me, hey, cannabis bad, alcohol good. And you got to kind of reprogram your your brain to say, no, wait, you know, there were there are some positive things about this other thing. And, and, and this thing over here that you were convinced was so good for you is actually poisonous trash mm -hmm. well i mean it just you know we could we could pick a different product every day of the week but it, ultimately it comes down to we live in a society i mean look at pharmaceuticals as an example i think there's like two countries in the world where pharmaceuticals can be marketed directly to the consumer united states and new zealand so we all run out and we're buying you know whatever thing it does you know oh this is going to fix your hip this is going to fix your knee this is going to fix your stomach no go to the gym eat properly go to church find you know find some center and if you if you use those things accordingly, then you can fix yourself. But there's no magic pill. And that includes cannabis. Right. Like 
there's no magic pill that a marketer can sell you. But going back to your point on alcohol, and I'll go back to Humphrey Bogart in the 50s, those memories that we created, you, you can't watch a Christmas movie from the 50s or 60s where there's not just barrels of booze at every table. Somehow Hanukkah and Christmas and all these holidays were associated with a family sitting around drinking. What they don't show you is, you know, the uncle fighting with your father or the grandmother falling down the steps or like, right, the chicken and the turkey being burnt because they're too drunk to remember. And I think that to me is just we bought into the marketing of the alcohol distributors versus the reality of alcohol, right? Like, right. I, and I'll use the, I'll use, you know, my own personal uh, experiences. I have some friends that really struggled with it. The ones that found the self-love gave up alcohol and now live very successful lives, however they do it. The ones that still drink, honestly, it's really fascinating. You made a comment about maturity. They're 50 year old men who act like they're still 18 years old, the mm -hmm. way they dress, the way they behave, the way they think, you know, they're talking about stuff. And I think it's because that they're stuck in this mindset of what they uh -oh. think alcohol consumption means. Like, well, I'm young and I'm fun and I go to the bars like you're 50 years old, man. Like, you know, like have a drink if it works for you, but but move on, progress somehow. And if cannabis helps you with that, so be it. If nothing, right, if just being alone with yourself, meditating helps, then do it. But I think consuming things, thinking they're going to bring you happiness, Joey, whatever it might be, including food, like you said, it doesn't work for people. It brings them just more sadness because they can never hit that high, right? Yeah. They, can, they, can, they have this moment and then they think that was good. Then they have self-doubt and self-hatred. They go out and eat more food the next day. And then they find themselves mm. in a beast biatric moment. And it's self-loathing, right? Because yeah. they thought, well, this Big Mac's going to make me successful, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't work that way. We, they showed this last show that we did uh, last week. Um, the guy, Di, uh, Di, Di Emanuel, great cat, uh, all about vulnerability as humans and being willing to be vulnerable about the gaps that we have, as well as obviously the positive things. And for whatever reason, big drinkers just have a hard time being honest with themselves or anyone around them about those gaps and being vulnerable. But the bigger thing is the relationships aren't real. Right. So we've been talking about a book on this show where it's the seven things that you can do to try to be happy well at 80. And it's all the things you would think about, you know, drinking, smoking, exercising, being at a healthy weight. But number seven is having healthy relationships. And as men, that's hard. And that's something that we're really trying to put out there that you have to be vulnerable. You have to have connection. You have to have these relationships. And what he says is that the guys with the best relationships at 50 are the most happy well at 80. And I subscribe to that. And I think a lot of what you just said really lines up to that too. Oh, amen to that. I, I'm, I'm really, I've really struggled with that over the last few years because 10, 20 years ago, my friends, the guys that I would hang out at a bar and drink with, um, they might buy you a beer in Medford or Malden, Massachusetts and tell stories about your high school exploits. But if you needed to actually go do something, they were useless, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not bad people. They were just drinking buddies. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to go out with a guy who's uh, been my mentor around bow hunting. And this is a real honest to God, true friend. Uh, someone mm. like yourself, Jam. I think, you know, you know you're going to move. I'm the first guy to show up. I'll help you move a couch. Yeah. Why? Because our friendship is honest and, and, and true. There's no alcohol. Mm. There's no selfishness being associated. And I think that's something that alcohol in particular is very different that I've learned than other things that we've consumed. Um, alcohol makes you very self-centered and very, uh, self-absorbed. 
And it's that that was the case for me. It was probably the case. Chest for you, out. Bam, right. I think it's for anybody. Yeah. And, Chest and, out, though. You know, it, yeah, exactly. And I, what happens is, to your point, you start to create these false realities and false friendships. And they're not it's oh, not yeah. real. There's no follow through. Um, the guys that I, you know, I'll have some gummies and ski with. These are legit. These are my these are my friends. You know, yeah. they're at the mountain at eight o'clock in the morning. We ski till five. We hang out with the kids. Uh, there's very little, if any, alcohol consumed in that group because everyone's sort of squared away. And, um, you know, we, we, we make the best of it. But I don't think alcohol creates healthy relationships. If anything, I think it creates very destructive relationships. The funny thing yeah. is, is I feel like we're at a toxic cocktail nexus point where yeah. you've got these fake friendships through alcohol, like you're used, like you said, drinking buddies. But now there's also this like emergence of friendships through the internet, which is yeah. another, you know, like especially young people. So your choices are I can go get drunk at a bar with a bunch of people that aren't really don't really have my best interests in mind. Or I could go pretend that I know these people that I've never even met before in real life and hang out with them in this virtual environment. Uh, back in the one thing that I think they did well back into the day, maybe, you know, I, I, I struggled to pinpoint which exact decade, but there were all kinds of like fellowship groups, some yeah. religious, some non-religious, but they were reasons to gather and talk to other human beings around a common purpose or common cause, um, that had nothing to do with alcohol or the internet. Like, do you think we're going to, now that wellness is like a multi-trillion dollar industry, do you think we're going to move towards bringing back some of these third party type groups where people can have fellowship with one another without booze? Yeah, I, I think everything. So there's a few things. If you notice in the news, uh, some of the big things in Boston, New York, even in DC is this idea. LA has it, these non-alcoholic bars. So yep. you go you go to these bars and there's no alcohol served. They're serving mocktails and sparkling water. They got the DJ. So I think there's some element of that already in play, Joe. I think what's more important, everything that's old is new again. It happens, right? We we live in this cyclical life on this in the, on this round planet, and I think we're coming back to a point where I believe there's a pandemic in the male world. Uh, we don't know what it means to be men. We don't know really what it means to be fathers or friends to one another. I think in my case, and this is an example, I've recognized this is a, being a, a 40 to 50 or 60 year old male. If you don't have the right friends, it becomes a very lonely place. Totally. And I've, I've noticed that that uh, idea of getting back to fellowship and brotherhood. You look at the success of Stephen Ranella with his Meat Eater podcast and his videos. The guy is an absolute rock star. I don't know about you guys, but I just want to go and I don't Hang even like them. Like I watched Luke Combs with him the other night and Luke Combs was in call. I think it was Colorado or maybe it was Wyoming. And Luke said, I didn't even have to shoot an animal. I just wanted to be in the woods with you guys. Yeah. Now, Luke Combs is an absolute rock star. Right. And hit the point he was making of sitting around a fire with five other guys talking about hunting and just being in the woods for me really resonated with me. Because Luke theoretically has all the money and the things he needs in life, but he was being very honest and I think vulnerable about how just sitting in the woods with those men was actually the goal for him. Now, granted, he shot a pronghorn and that was a great <laughs> hunt, but I think what was really successful from what I heard out of Luke's mouth was sitting with someone like a Steve Ranella and see, sitting with all these different guys around the fire. So I think to their credit, Steve Ranella and Rogan have created this new movement for guys like us who want to get together and go hike, go fish, 
you know, maybe just sit around a fire and tell stories and like do what men did a hundred, a thousand, five thousand years ago, right? There, Notice, I mean, they're and they're also know, taking a stand against booze, right? Yeah, but, you know, I, I think men only get better when they're challenged by other men. My hmm. ex-wife or my children can challenge me, and I'm going to do that of which I think is right by them. But if I'm in a fellowship with Joey and G, J, JM and they're my real friends and say, dude, you got to take it up a notch, you know, like we're here to support you, but you're, you're a rock star. Go make it happen. Then guess what? I'm going to feel that, that love of the brothers to make it happen. And I think right now that's missing Joey. And I think society, uh, mm. not to get into the politics, but we, we've got to fix that because mm. the leaders we have on both sides, these aren't men that I think any one of us would want to hang out with and, and you know, learn from these are true politicians they say things that have no meaning i want to get back to a world where men say things and they mean it and then we go make it happen i hear that dude me too man hashtag me too (laughs) 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 no i think that's interesting um just sort of in in closing especially as you're talking about um society and and the leadership and politics one thing that we can all get pretty excited about in politics and uh, we'll, we, we can close with this is some current events around the news specific to uh, the regulation of cannabis, right? So the, the um, last week was election day. There's lots of different votes and on the ballots, particular to cannabis. And uh, Ohio was a big state. They ended up uh, passing, I think, 57%. And with that, I think we can all give a little bit of a round of applause for Ohio. But with Ohio. that, uh, more than 50% of the country's population is now living within uh, legal uh, states for recreation. And I think that that obviously aligns really closely to a lot, David, that you were talking about today. But, you know, with that, with that news that we're now 50%, more than 50% legal from a population perspective. And also the fact that on the floor this week, they're talking about uh, being, you know, federally insuring cannabis. Where do you think that puts this industry over the next 6, 12, 18 months? What's your well, perspective? Well, you know, Joey had already set the tone earlier. We're a consumption-based society. Now that the banks realize that there's a lot of money behind it, you're going to see FDIC insurance rules change, in my humble opinion. Uh, there's a lot of cash being stored in warehouses and, you know, uh, Fitchburg, Massachusetts, because they couldn't bring the cash to the bank. Well, bankers want to make money. And now that they have 50% of American society living in cannabis legal areas, the money is going to follow the money. You can see it already with the dispensaries in Massachusetts. The banks have come in and they bought up the small mom and pop shops, right? They run them like a real pharmacy. They run them very well. And that's because there's money behind it. So I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see banking laws change so that marijuana and FDIC insurance rules are now applicable to people who want to take in money from the cannabis industry. Uh, that's my humble opinion. I also think it's just smart politics. There's you know, a lot of young people who grew up in places where cannabis uh, has been legal for five to 10 years, and those people don't want to go to jail for having a joint. Um, so I think you follow the money and people are going to consume this product. And I think you're going to see an expansion. You're already seeing states like Maine and Massachusetts, and I think a few others, they're talking about... Um, you know, legalizing psilocybin or, or we'll call medical ma- magic mushrooms. Well, that I think is because if you look at the use of cannabis and, and psilocybin for veterans, uh, you know, the pharmacy pharmacies have been pushing these drugs on these veterans of PTSD and there's, you know, a little call out to 22 a day, 22 veterans a day who commit suicide. Yeah. And there's now 
uh, a lot of documentation that when they treat them with non-pharmaceuticals, non-pills, when they provide ketamine or psilocybin, specifically um, it's cannabis, uh, they're getting different results because they're not, you know, giving them lithium and numbing their brains. They're allowing them to essentially work through their trauma. So I, I think there's a fascinating future for the cannabis industry. Uh, and it ultimately comes down to Joey's point, which is consumerism equals the dollars. And in this country, that's really what it's about. Hopefully there's more of a scientific intellectual approach to it. Right. But I feel like the reality is, and we saw it here in Massachusetts, once the bank saw the dollar bills, the whole market changed. Well, yeah. if we can get you as the cannabis general to start talking about all of the scientific stuff you did up front. I'm down. You sponsor, we can sponsor that, a nice, a great way to, you know, we'll get a, we'll get a running and cycling triathlon team sponsored by the brand yeah. and make it happen. No doubt. Or just sponsor um, my deer hunts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one thing, one thing about, about this all is that there's still a stigma with cannabis, like whether you yeah. like it or not, you know, my, my mom was with me this weekend and, and she still holds a stigma specific to cannabis. And that still definitely exists. I think it also really exists in the professional world. So as a guy in the professional world, that's talking about going for runs with cannabis in the morning before a big event, you know, 10 years ago, that was something you probably couldn't even really talk about openly with the people that you're with. Talk about just the transition of that. Well, um, I, I think it's fascinating how 10 years ago, you know, I would literally be with you somewhere at a trade show. I'd wake up and uh, I'd, I'd have some cannabis gummies and I'd go run three to five miles with a cup of coffee and I'd have to kind of keep that to myself. People would always ask me through the course of the day, why are you so positive? Why are you so easygoing? You know, what, what is it about you? And I would have to kind of keep mm. that in check. And then usually at seven or eight o'clock as we're walking down the street in Amsterdam, they would kind of figure it out as I'm like, well, if you're interested, you know, <laughs> I'd walk in, I'd be like Norma Cheers. They'd be like, oh, it's our American friend, Dave, who likes sativa and who runs. So I think what happened for me over the last five years is a lot of people in the professional world, I've, I've seen this physically where they've, they've taken alcohol sort of out of the social and they've added cannabis because nobody's fist fighting at a bar on a gummy, you know, where you can go to a trade show and if someone over drinks, someone's going to flirt with someone. It's just bad things happen. But I think for the first few, for, for, quite honestly, Jam, for a good five or 10 years in my usage, I had to keep cannabis consumption to myself. I would mm. often, you know, just not even mention it where now it's pretty open. And yeah. what's really interesting is how a lot of organizations have removed blood, you know, marijuana in the drug testing. I think drug testing should sit ex still exist because of some of the hard drugs that are terrible that will kill you. Um, but the fact a lot of organizations have loosened that up, I think says a lot about where this industry and where that stigma is going. But again, let's go back to our grandparents and our parents' generation. They think Humphrey Bogart smoking 14, you know, camels and having bourbon for breakfast was normal. So yeah. that was just the way that they were programmed by the advertisers. We're now being programmed by new advertisers, but I think it's really important for us to think critically and for ourselves. Um, and I think there are a lot of people out there, no matter what the internet says, that, that do think critically about what is good for me, what is bad for me, and what makes me a better person. And I think cannabis is losing the stigma of just sort of Dave the lacrosse player who listens to Grateful Dead and has become something that's like, no, it helps my grandmother she doesn't have cannabis. She might have a CBD cannabinoid gummy, but her arthritis isn't bothering her. Or my uncle who has anxiety and depression is not as sad. He goes outside for walks now because he's had a gummy and his headspace is different. Dude, so I think as go. the medicinal and the recreational worlds come together, 
the stigma will change, but it all comes down to the consumption industry and the advertisers and how they make us think of it. Well, think uh, about it this way. When you had, when everything was illegal, you, you know, everybody's perception of cannabis or marijuana or weed, if you want to call it that, was just used a, a perfect terminology earlier, dazed and confused. The, the idea mm. was psychedelics and you got, you know, the, the brand of marijuana or the brand of cannabis was very like you're at a Grateful Dead show and everything is too, totally trippy and stuff like that. Nowadays, with capitalism and the free markets and competition and the fact that it's, it's becoming legal in all these states, P, you, brands will come in or people will come in and create brands that identify with you no matter what life stage you're in. So you can have a much more professional looking consumption or, mo or model your behavior in a much more professional way than you would have been able to 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I, I think that just to add on to that is it used to be, I think that certain cannabis products and even the strands of cannabis that, that Hegarty was talking about, it looks like we lost him. Um, were had to be towards a certain group, right? But now, and even some of the stuff we're talking about outside of this show, there are cannabis products that are being marketed to everyone from my mom to my sisters, to my colleagues, to the guys I play golf with, um, all the way to sort of the Gen Z, you know, college, you looking to swap uh, drinking for something else. And so I, I think the even just the trend of consumption is starting to take hold specific to this world as well. And what what the beauty is, is that just the, the wellness and health improvements that we see uh, consuming cannabis uh, versus alcohol. So, um, you know, I think really exciting time for for the industry and, and really for the community at whole. Well, folks, you've been tuned in to the Fuzzy-ish podcast, The Kind of Sober Show. Uh, I'm Joey Q. Obviously, uh, as always, JM's been here for the co-hosting details. And for those of you listening, uh, I want to make sure you have the ability to connect with David after the show. So David, how can people reach out to you? Is there an email or is there an Instagram account? Like, How would you like people from the Fuzzy-ish podcast interacting with you? Yeah, so it's uh, David underscore Hegarty at Yahoo. It's H-E-G-A-R-T-Y, yahoo.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, again, it's David Hegarty, H-E-G-A-R-T-Y. And uh, any feedback or any, you know, if anyone has any questions asked on how to leverage cannabis in their running or their mental health, let me know. And uh, I'd love to be a resource. And it's been a pleasure talking with you both today. Thank you very much for your time. All right. So if you want to go big game hunting, David is your guy and you might be on a gummy while you do it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Much, yeah. you're absolutely going to be in a gummy. <laughs> Dude, appreciate you, man. Thanks for joining us. This was awesome. Have a great day, guys. To Thanks again. It. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for the time. This was the Fuzzy-ish podcast, the kindest sober show. Uh, great conversation today with my boy Joe Q and good friend David Hegarty. Lots to think about coming out of this show. If you want to find us, find us on any of the podcast channels or our site, fuzzyishpodcast.com, F-U-Z-Z-E-E-I-S-H podcast. Dot com. And until next time, we'll be in touch. See ya.